Well, welcome everyone to uh, Bell's Brief Chats. Um, just a quick word about Bell's for clarification. Bell stands for British Educated Life Scientists, of uh, which there are literally thousands working around the world to advance life-saving innovations throughout the health and life sciences globally. Uh, today, we're very fortunate to be speaking with Rupert Vesey, uh, who is currently the president of research and early development for Bristol Myers Squibb. So uh, leaping straight into it, uh, tell us about a little bit about where you grew up, Rupert, uh, went to school and what drew you to medicine. Yeah, well, uh, hi, Nigel. Uh, good to talk to you. Um, yep, I grew up in, uh, in in the UK, obviously, and uh, spent a large part of my uh, childhood in the, in the Oxford area, really, where... Um, my father worked at the at the university there, and um, I uh, uh, went to school uh, in Oxford, and then uh, went to the university for my uh, undergraduate degree and, and clinical training. Uh, the things that really uh, motivated me to get into uh, both medicine and, uh, I guess, uh, uh, biopharma, if you like, were of course, um, great examples and mentors. So uh, my father that I mentioned uh, was a physician uh, with a, a long and distinguished career in epidemiology. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was also um, a physician. He, he grew up in a, in a family in Leeds where uh, his father, my great grandfather was a cobbler actually. And uh, he came from that background and uh, did a PhD in biochemistry and then uh, trained to be a physician and actually did a lot of research in China pre-World War II. Uh, my uncle was a physician. Uh, he was born in Shanghai uh, and, uh, you know, became a, a physician uh, back in the UK. So there were lots of uh, great examples to follow. And, uh, you know, while I was uh, in high school, I was lucky to have uh, some great teachers in particular uh, one of my uh, biology teachers who uh, also served as a, an adjunct professor at, at the University in Oxford. So he was a very high powered uh, teacher. And uh, I can distinctly remember him uh, teaching us about the uh, cloning and production of human insulin as one of the first ever uh, recombinant products. And, and that really caught my imagination, stuck in my mind. And I thought, I, I, I want to be a part of this. So um, these were really the things that uh, push me in that direction uh, at university and beyond. And um, once at Oxford, I guess you could be accused of being a perpetual student because you spent about 14 years ac accumulating assorted qualifications. Uh, was this a case of one thing leading to another or a carefully chosen path? Well, you know, I, I really wanted to, to go to university there. And, um, you know, so I got in to do uh, the undergraduate uh, degree in physiological sciences, which uh, uh, was then, and I guess is now the, the prelude to going into the to the clinical school. There, there is a, a, an opportunity at the end of that to uh, go to a different uh, medical school, but um, I, I guess I liked it there too much, and uh, you know there were lots of other things that that I was interested in. So I stayed there for for clinical uh, training as well. It's a it's a very good uh, clinical school. And then uh, I came back a few years later uh, to enroll in a, a DPhil or you know PhD program uh, at the Institute of Molecular Medicine. So 
um, it, it was the sort of beginning of a of a golden era in Oxford, I think, really. Uh, David Weatherall was the Regis Professor of Medicine at the time, who was a real leader in human genetics and hemoglobinopathies. Uh, and he established this uh, Institute for Molecular Medicine there, which, uh, um, you know, a lot of us, I think, really wanted to to work there with people who were at the cutting edge. And since then, um, obviously, Professor Sir John Bell, who was actually my uh, DPhil supervisor, has uh, done amazing things uh, at the university in terms of expanding uh, the footprint and entering other areas and creating uh, extraordinary opportunities for uh, research and, and for students there now as well. And while you're there, you also got your blue and participated in a number of varsity games. I think you, I, I remember that it was five that you participated in. Uh, and I actually came across an aerial shot of you being challenged by one Gavin Hastings, which is an illustrious company to keep. Um, so how many years actually, was it five years that you participated in the match? And did you continue your rugby or call it a day as you got into more advanced academics? Yeah, I was uh, I was really lucky um, to be able to play uh, for five out of the six years that I was there. I, I didn't make the team as a, a freshman. That's quite uh, a challenge and quite un unusual, especially back in those days when uh, rugby was still an amateur game, which you, you remember well, uh, Nigel. So, uh, you know, the... Um, the availability to university sides of, of top class players who were actual current internationals was uh, much more than it is today. So competition for places was was pretty steep. And you can see that from uh, the shot you mentioned of Gavin Hastings, you know, one of the all time greats uh, who played in a, in a very strong series of of Cambridge teams. Yeah, th this was really a, a, a big ambition for me and part of the reason why I wanted to focus on Oxford, when I was actually in uh, middle school um, in Tame uh, in Oxfordshire, we had a, uh, uh, a chap who went to our school whose name was Willie Cook, and he played in the varsity match in 1976. And because he was on the team, we all got given the afternoon off to watch the game on television. I was already a keen rugby player, and I thought, wow, that, that's really something I'd really like to, you know, to be able to, to do that. So I got very focused uh, on that, as well as the you know the sort of academic side of uh, of my work, and and it worked out uh, well for me. I, I had amazing experiences, uh, toured all sorts of incredible places, and and I often say to people, I think all the useful things I learned about um, being a leader and and dealing with uh, my colleagues and and collaborators, I, I think I learned much more from. Uh, you know, being on the rugby team than I did from from anything else. It was uh, it was a really formative experience for me. Yeah, I would echo that. I mean, uh, certainly gave me those uh, learnings and skills as well. Um, so, did you end up you, you actually practice medicine at any point? Um, had you bitten the, or had you bitten the research uh, research bug early on? I, I did. Um, you know, I left uh, once I finished. Uh, clinical training. Uh, I did uh, obviously uh, house jobs and then SHO rotations through uh, various hospitals in London. Spent quite a lot of time at the at the Hammersmith Hospital uh, on rotation there. I also worked in uh, uh, a number of uh, district general hospitals as part of that training. And actually when I came back to 
Oxford to work in the lab, I continued to do uh, clinics on a on a regular basis. And when I finished my DPhil, I did spend a, a short period of time as clinical lecturer uh, at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And it was from there, really, that um, I identified opportunity at what was then Glaxo Welcome. Uh, and that mm -hmm. was my first step into industry. And that was um, back in 1997, was it? Uh, yes, that's right. So uh, I, uh, at that time, uh, Glaxo Welcome was uh, really interested in um, therapeutic vaccination, if you like. Um, and uh, people had observed that uh, DNA could be uh, made into a convenient uh, vaccine. Uh, there were also uh, recombinant viral vaccines uh, being developed, for example, for um, herpes simplex. So the company really wanted somebody uh, with clinical training, but a very um, current understanding of viral immunology. And, you know, that's where I had spent some considerable time uh, in the lab. So it, it just seemed like a, a perfect fit. I mean, it's interesting looking back at those projects, which didn't ultimately turn into products. But I, I think that a lot of the work that was done back then by people in the field, you know, has laid the, the groundwork for what we're seeing now with uh, with COVID vaccines, they were the the beginnings of um, you know new and more sophisticated approaches to to creating vaccines, and uh, it just shows you how long it takes for these things to uh, incubate in the background and be and, and to be tried over and over again. And and all your all your years with GSK were they all spent in the UK um, before Merck came calling you? So I had uh, two periods of time and what we might call the Glaxo group of companies. I, I started off, as I said, at Glaxo Welcome in the UK. And uh, that was a, a, a great experience. Um, I really enjoyed uh, that job. And uh, then I got recruited uh, by Merck uh, to go and work in their uh, quite substantial vaccine business. And I, I decided to do that. Um, I decided to make the move to the US uh, you know, I could just see in the in the long run, uh, because of the you know pretty vibrant nature of the of the biotech world in the U.S., that this would uh, be a place where I could you know have a lot of opportunities and and do different things. And so um, I took that opportunity and I worked at Merck for uh, another period of time, mostly on vaccines for uh, varicella viruses. So. Um, childhood varicella, which is a, actually a mandatory vaccine for schooling uh, in the US, not in, in Europe. Um, and also on the first shingles vaccine, Zostavax, um, which was uh, uh, an interesting product. It's uh, been superseded to some extent by uh, Shingrix now, a, a more modern vaccine from GSK. And then I actually got uh, the opportunity to go back and work at Glaxo after they'd completed their merger with uh, SmithKline, there was a, a new model uh, being developed for uh, research and development there under the leadership of, of Tachi Yamada. And, uh, you know, I was living in the Philadelphia area. And, and now because of the merger of the company, they had a lot of operations in that area. So the team that I had worked with previously uh, got in touch with me. And, and there was a great opportunity there to uh, um, 
lead a, a group of physicians working on translational science and then ultimately um, uh, spread out into um, uh, overseeing some of the biology and the respiratory and inflammation area. Mm -hmm. Difficult decision to uproot to the States or one you really... Uh, you know, I mean, yes and, and no. I, I mean, from a work point of view, uh, I think it made sense. Um, and I was excited about those opportunities. Um, of course, you, you know, you leave things behind that are, you know, like family and, and friends in particular, who you, it's much harder to see. I mean, what I would say is that over the last 20 years, um, the world has sort of collapsed in size in some ways. You know, I mean, when I first moved to the US, you, it was really hard to get a cell phone that would call Europe. I mean, there's only one company that, that made one and the rates were exorbitant. Uh, you know, now, you know, you look at us chatting Here we are. Yeah. right now. Yeah, we're, we're doing this. And, you know, this weekend, I'm going to sit down and watch the opening round of the Six Nations Championship. You couldn't do that 20 years ago. You had to just, yeah. um, you know, wait for the for the news to filter through to you. So it's been an extraordinary acceleration in, in communications um, over that, you know, over that period of time. And then uh, the, the years of the Merck definitely took you to the life science hotspots of the United States. You went to Seattle, Boston, New Jersey, and you were a site head at most of those places. Um, I presume that really helped groom you for future senior management roles. Yeah, I mean, my, my second stint at, at Merck was, uh, you know, sort of a, a transition from um, leading relatively small groups where you know, I was, uh, you know, not necessarily the scientific expert, but, you know, in, but I, I knew that, you know, the work of all the people who were on my team and, um, you know, I could supervise that at a, at a very technical level, if you like. Uh, when I went back to, to Merck for my uh, second period of time, shortly after arriving there, um, I got asked by uh, the president of Merck Research Labs at the time, Peter Kim, uh, whether I would consider going out to Seattle to help lead and integrate Rosetta Informatics, mm -hmm. which was a company that they had acquired that had um, really were the pioneers in gene expression profiling at the time, large-scale molecular profiling. Uh, they had some fantastic computational sciences. So, you know, now all of a sudden you're being asked to lead something that you've never actually done yourself uh, instead of, you know, 15 people, it's 350 people. Um, and your job is really to, uh, you know, provide a, a vision, a connection to uh, the mainstream activities of the, of the uh, biopharma company um, and get people focused on uh, really important questions that need to be solved for the, for the drug pipeline. And, uh, you know, that, that role was a um, a tough one to take. Actually, it, it, in some ways, it was harder to move from the East Coast to Seattle than it was to make the move to the US in the, in the first place, because by that time, you know, I had a, a family. And so we had to move kids, you know, out of school and things like that. So that, that was a much more uh, challenging thing to do from a, a personal point of view. Um, and, you know, you, you have to click over from you know, focusing just on the science and the science questions to really um, focusing on 
that, but also all of the people and the things that they need in order to be innovative uh, and productive and, and so on and so forth. And so I, I think it, you know, transitions you away from a sort of, um, you know, almost selfish approach to what you're doing to a, to a much more selfless approach. And I, I always look back on that as a, as a click over into broader leadership. And from there, yeah, I ran a, a couple of other sites for Merck. I, I had a great time uh, running the site in Boston because it's such a fantastic um, environment, uh, just amazing science going on. Uh, and then uh, after Merck and Turing Plough came together, uh, I was asked to come back to New Jersey and, and help integrate uh, the Kenilworth site, which was the main site for Shearing Plough into the Merck organization. So I did that for a period of time. And then I held a couple of uh, jobs overseeing much larger parts of the portfolio, the respiratory and inflammation portfolio um, from Target all the way to 2B and then ultimately all of discovery and, and early development. And then you finally got attracted to biotech <laughs> in 2015. Uh, although, you know, you could argue companies like Celgene were really becoming biopharmaceutical behemoths yeah. uh, in their own right. Yeah, it was an interesting um, moment in time. I mean, I uh, had a, uh, you know, a, a, a very good relationship with uh, Sir Mark Feldman, who, uh, you know, discovered the use of, of uh, TNF for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and, and so on. And the rest of that is, uh, you know, history, extraordinary story. And, and he introduced me to the um, head of research and early development at Celgene, who was Tom Daniel. And uh, we went out and had some dinner and we just got on, you know, incredibly well. Tom's um, uh, research organization was expanding quite dramatically at the time. I mean, they'd gone beyond myeloma. Um, Otesla had just been approved. There were a lot of um, inflammation projects in the pipeline. And I, I think he really wanted to uh, bring somebody in with those kinds of experiences to, to help him uh, grow uh, that part of the, of the organization. Um, I think also, uh, although he didn't tell me at the time, you know, he was obviously trying to build up uh, succession planning for, uh, for his position. Um, so, you know, I, I looked at that and it, it just seemed like a, a great opportunity to learn how to do something uh, differently. You know, I'd been through a lot of uh, merger and acquisition uh, type activity. Celgene was in a really fantastic phase of growth. There was a lot of, um, uh, you know, um, money available to invest in uh, business development. There was a, a very interesting um, external research and early development model that had been pioneered by Tom and uh, uh, George Golombeski. And uh, I also could see that it was a, an organization that was small enough that, you know, I would be able to have quite a, an impact and get to know a lot of people very quickly, uh, rather than uh, coming into a, a very large organization as, as you know, more of a, a, a figurehead, which might have happened if I uh, looked at other positions. So it just seemed like a a great time and a great opportunity uh, to do that. And I'm, I'm really glad I did. The, the five years that I spent um, in standalone Celgene were a huge learning uh, opportunity. And, uh, you know, we, we've done some really interesting things, both scientifically and on the business development side that uh, my team and I are pretty proud of. 
and then 2019, uh, Big Pharma comes back into your life uh, through the acquisition of Celgene by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting that, in the, I remember watching the shakeout of management then between the two organisations, and, and you were one of the Celgene executives invited to take on a senior role in the combined companies as president of early development and research. Um, was there any thought given to looking to remain in biotech at that time? Well, you know, I think when something like that happens and, you know, you have a, a year uh, of uncertainty uh, while you move towards the close of the acquisition, you know, you're, you're always going to look at the options in front of you. And, you know, people are going to contact you with a range of different uh, proposals and, and propositions. So uh, certainly, you know, during that period, um, you know, I weighed up. Uh, uh, different things, and that there were some, you know, really interesting uh, options that that I could have taken. But um, you know, in the in the final analysis, uh, there were several things that um, really persuaded me to um, stay on and, and work in in BMS. I mean, first of all, um, our CEO Giovanni Caforio, you know, acquiring Celgene is a sort of signature moment for his leadership of. BMS, and I, I think that you know he really saw this as an opportunity to create um, a new company and a new environment. Uh, often these acquisitions are about you know cost cutting and uh, you know um, getting synergies out of the two organizations. You find there's a lot of overlap in the portfolios and things like that, so you you don't end up with as much new mm -hmm. stuff as you thought you would. In this case, Celgene and, and BMS really had very different uh, portfolios for the most part. I mean, yes, we had to divest of Tesla, but beyond that, um, and certainly at the research level, the directions had been different and complementary and the skill sets and approaches are different and complementary. So he saw this as a great opportunity to do something um, differently and build a new culture. And I think that was, you know, an appealing uh, part of the, um, you know, of the opportunity. The other thing is that, you know, my team at Celgene, uh, many of whom have stayed with me uh, in the new organization. I mean, I think we all felt that, you know, we, we'd invested quite a lot in the Celgene pipeline. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of opportunities there, but they're not done. You know, we haven't gotten those programs into late development yet. There are a few things that we're still waiting to get approved. And I think there was a, an overwhelming desire to really see those things through and an understanding that if you didn't stay engaged and, and do that, um, recreating that environment and that opportunity elsewhere, um, you know, was not going to be possible. So your, your alternative really was to sort of, you know, put a full stop to all that work and go and start somewhere else all over again. And I, I think, uh, you know, there was enough there that we, we really wanted to, to continue to, to carry these things forward. So um, all of this combined, uh, I think, um, it, you know, encouraged me and, and several others uh, to stay. And so far the integration's gone uh, very well. Um, there's a lot of um, very valuable capabilities uh, in both heritage organizations that um, are having a, a strong amplifying effect on our portfolio, I think. 
And from the conversations that you and I have shared over the years, I know you've maintained close connections with the UK and in particular with your alma mater at Oxford. Um, indeed, you attended the alumni summit that Bell's helped to organize uh, back in Oxford in 2015, which was all about strengthening connections between the UK and British educated life scientists like yourself. Has there been both a, a strategic and an emotional attachment to, to the UK and to Oxford? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the UK is a, it's a fantastic environment for biomedical research. We can see the fruits of some of those accomplishments in the way that actually the, the UK has been leading in the COVID pandemic on many fronts, I think. And, uh, you know, I think we should all be really uh, proud of that. That's the um, consequence of many years of important uh, investment. And, you know, there, there are uh, great inst institutions and there are obviously some uh, very strong um, larger companies that remain uh, based mm -hmm. in the UK. And I, I think that's all good, certainly as um, Oxford has grown in the last uh, 20 years or so um, through uh, Sir John Bell's leadership. Um, you know, there have been fantastic opportunities, not just for our company, uh, but for many companies uh, to collaborate there. Cambridge is obviously another great place. And there's been um, a lot of investment um, into, uh, into the London area with the advent of the Crick Institute and so on and so forth. I know that um, one of my former companies, Merck, has established a research uh, mm -hmm. presence uh, in London. So I, I think, you know, everybody can see that there's um, a lot of potential there. Uh, we've had some great things over the years with, with Oxford. Right now, we have a couple of uh, really interesting things. And for about six years, we've run a translational fellowship uh, program uh, together with Sir Mark Feldman. Um, and, you know, we've probably had 30 fellows uh, through our hands in, in that time. Some of them have actually contributed meaningfully to uh, product submissions um, at Celgene and now at BMS. And, uh, you know, in, in normal circumstances, uh, we come out there a couple of times a year to interact with the fellows. Of course, we're going to do that uh, virtually now. But that, that's been a great program that's given um, up and coming scientists there the opportunity to interact with industrial scientists in a meaningful way. Um, we've also run a, a really productive um, incubator fund uh, in collaboration with um, Oxford Science Innovation and EvaTech. Uh, and that's just given rise after about three or four years to the first spin-out company, which is an oncology company called Dark Blue Therapeutics, which has a number of exciting uh, programs in there. So we're continuing to do that. And, and actually based on that model, uh, we're now looking to um, set up a UK-wide um, incubator uh, fund with multiple universities across the, the UK to see if we can uh, repeat that experiment of incubating things from an academic setting uh, into new company formation. I mean, I think, you know, the, the one area that the UK needs to continue to really focus on, at least from my point of view, is capitalizing on the innovation that comes out of the universities and figuring out what is the most efficient way to form small companies and get to critical mass in the UK where you have experienced CEOs, CSOs who can cycle through uh, new companies because not all of them work um, 
but you you know this is one of the things you see a lot in in Boston is that there's just a critical mass of people um, and young scientists who can sustain uh, many rounds of new company formation and then some of them become spectacularly successful others don't work out and then you repeat uh, the process and and I think getting to that type of um, situation in the UK would be wonderful I think it, it can be done with the right mindset and and the right sort of um, investment and you know perhaps uh, um, you know the the post brexit environment provides the the opportunity to do that I would I would love to see that happen mm-hmm. um, it's that's encouraging to hear because um, an observation from my point of view is historically it seems that BMS had not been as visible a presence in the UK in the past. Is that a fair portrayal? I think that is true. I mean, I think that, um, you know, BMS in its um, former configuration uh, was a company that uh, was very much focused on uh, being in central New Jersey, uh, Mm -hmm. which, as you know, um, at one time was the sort of center of the universe for um, large pharma companies. There's still a lot of activity, although it tends to be more on the, you know, product development uh, side. And most of the research activity has moved to places like Boston, San Francisco, to some extent, Seattle and San Diego. And, uh, you know, I hope uh, more and more to the uh, to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um you know, BMS really opened their, uh, for example, their site in, in Cambridge was opened about 18 to 24 months ago. So you can contrast that with Novartis, for example, who uh, opened a site in Cambridge 20 years ago, or Merck, yeah. who opened their site uh, probably, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. So um, I think that is a fair comment, um, but we've really got a different footprint now. And I think, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely diversifying uh, the number of places where we're prepared to work. Excellent. Um, so I think this, the the answer to this question is probably very obvious now, but um, I presume you continue to see the UK as a very strategic venue for the health and life sciences going forward. And and if so, why? Is it just the academia that we've got or does it go beyond that? Uh, you know, I, I think that... Um, the, the academic piece has to be the base of this, right? Because, um, you know, that's where you test out and generate numerous hypotheses. So, you know, a, a lot of the, I mean, there are venture firms in, in the US that sort of generate their own spin out ideas mm-hmm. right from scratch. I mean, Flagship is an example of a company yep. that works that way. But for the most part, um, you know, the, the idea generation, the initial data uh, does get generated um, in, you know, very strong academic institutions by people who are serial innovators. So I think that base is, is critical. It's also vital for training people um, who are going to populate, you know, biopharma, whether that's large companies or small companies and you know you can't do anything without a really strong well-trained uh you know workforce of of people to you know to be in this space i mean so you've got to have that so it all starts there um i think that 
going from there to creating new companies is the area, and there have obviously been some really notable successes in the, in the UK, and, and you know we wouldn't um, say that there, there haven't been. The, the question is, can you make it happen more? Um, mm. And actually, the you know the the funds required to in, to go from a, a, an idea and some data in an academic lab to something that is of sufficient robustness that you can attract investment to form a new company is it's not a huge amount of money. You just need you need the right mindset and you need access to the right capabilities to make sure that everything is really robust and really reproducible and you know, you have the right tools. And, and you know, I think in, in our incubator, we found a really good way to do that in partnership with, with EvaTech. There's no reason that that can't be done um, at scale across the UK. And then I, I think the other thing that you really have to think about is if you're then going to put potential assets into a new company, it's not efficient to have lots of one or two asset new companies. Because yep. you have to hire a CEO and a CSO and, you know, you have to fund it. And then, you know, you've only got two assets and neither of them might, you know, make it over the over the line, either into a partnership or, 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 or further, if you want the company to, you know, IPO and all the rest of it. So thinking about how you aggregate uh, those assets into um, larger, more robust entities uh, within the UK, I think is a really important uh, thing to do. And that means that, you know, the universities where those things come from have to be prepared to share and collaborate. And so there are some things that really need to be thought about and, and solved here, but I think they can be done. And, uh, you know, I think if you can do that, then, you know, you can create a really robust environment here. And some of the companies may go all the way themselves. Others may partner with uh, larger companies like like ours to to take things forward and just as far as the assets or the offerings um, in the UK which ones catch your attention well I think you know there's there's been some uh, really notable successes I mean, you know I mean I, I think we're all familiar with Heptaris, for example, um, which has been a big success. And then um, there are some really good companies um, working on um, immune-based therapies uh, around the Oxford area. Obviously, immunology has been an incredibly strong mm -hmm. uh, area there. But you know, there are uh, two or three companies that have uh, formed there that are making uh, tremendous progress on um, immuno-oncology. Um, approaches. So, you know, I think there, there are some really great examples where, um, the, you know, the UK is in, in leading positions, but I just think there need to be and can be more. Yeah. Resources like the biobank or trial capabilities. Well, trial so that's, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, uh, point you raised there, Nigel. So, so if you, if you don't think about biotech companies, but you think about initiatives Mm -hmm. that have um, come out of the UK for, you know, larger scale research activities. There, there have been some terrific things there. Yeah, the UK mm -hmm. Biobank that we participate in is yielding a, a lot of very valuable data. And I know there are many other um, initiatives that are going on in the UK to, to try to maximize 
the value of large-scale integrated data sets. And uh, that's obviously an area of focus. It can bring a lot of value, a lot of insight. Uh, in the realm of clinical trials, um, you know, I, I know that uh, uh, recently, for example, um, Novartis conducted a, a clinical trial in the UK that they were able to enroll at an extraordinary clip mm -hmm. because of the ability of the UK investigators to access exactly the right patients and ask them if they wanted uh, to participate. That's another area that uh, we're looking at. And as that continues to become more sophisticated, I think that that offers a, a, a tremendous opportunity for the UK to lead the way uh, yep. in terms of, of getting things done. I, I'll also say that I think that you know, the way, personally, I think the way that the UK has handled the approval of vaccines um, has been really exemplary in this yep. environment. I think they've been very scientific. Um, the data isn't perfect or complete in every instance, but we're in a dire situation. And I think they've used, uh, you know, the data that they do have coupled with what we know about the behavior of viruses and the immune system to make judgments and, um, you know, uh, take, I don't want to say uh, risks, that's not the right word, but, you, you know, to take um, carefully thought out calculated approaches that are a bit different from um, other parts of the, of the world. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to pay dividends. And, you know, I think once again, they're, they're going to be the first to uh, probably approve a, a protein-based vaccine. So, you know, got every single kind of vaccine uh, that uh, we're aware of for COVID mm -hmm. um, all mm -hmm. getting approved first in, in the UK and, and being rolled out to the population there. And, uh, you know, they did a, have done a really good job on that. And they also did a fantastic job on the initial clinical trials, um, you know, demonstrating the, the value of uh, steroid therapy it probably saved many many lives uh, and the way that that study was gotten off the ground got running and executed um, there's no other country uh, that's come close to generating valuable data in, in such a short time frame. Interesting that you mentioned uh, Novartis because that was one big part of the conversation that we had recently with Clive Meanwell of course, the medicines company, which became part of Novartis right. just over a year ago. Um, well, Rupert, I mean, obviously quite a journey. Do you see yourself obviously um, staying in the US for the time being, but can you foresee it return to the UK uh, and, uh, and coming back to yeah. the, the homeland? I think from, uh, you know, from a, a, a family and residence point of view, you know, th this is my my home now we you know I, yeah. uh, my wife's from Michigan uh, my youngest son is a um, avid basketball player mm -hmm. so I, I've learned to uh, I love, I, I've learned to love <laughs> basketball so uh, yeah. you know um, so I, I'm going to be here uh, you know for the foreseeable future having said that um, you know I, I'm very interested in finding ways to continue to help um, you know, with UK science and, you know, beyond the position that I'm in today, where obviously we do a lot of collaborating, um, I, I think there will be opportunities to help with, you know, venture investing or uh, 
boards of companies in the UK, I would be, um, you know, really happy to do those kinds of things. And, and actually, in, in the long term, uh, we definitely plan to spend some portion of every year in the UK because, uh, you know, I'd like to see my parents and I'd like to spend time with my brother and sister and catch up with old friends. So that's definitely uh, something that we have uh, in the works. Probably we choose, you know, spring or autumn rather than the dead of winter, but uh, right. <laughs> it's definitely in the plans. And I guess I just close by just asking for your impressions or your comments around what we're trying to do with Bells in terms of what we're looking to achieve and whether how you see it in terms of its relevance or importance for the UK. Uh, Nigel, I think it's, you know, it's, it's obviously been a, a really um, good organization and, uh, you know, I certainly enjoyed the, the summit that we had a few years back. I, I really hope we can do um, another one, e even if it was uh, virtual, I think it would be mm -hmm. fun, but I'd obviously much rather that we did it in person. I, I think, you know, some of the things that we've discussed during this interview um, make this even more important. I mean, I, I think if you can, I mean, the UK, you know, is in a, in a great spot right now. Um, I think they need access to experience and expertise. And I think, you know, if, if you're able to tap into uh, mm -hmm. people who have a real passion for uh, what the UK is doing and, and what it can continue to do, they can uh, lend their expertise and insights. Um, you can help foster that group into a, a community. Um, I can see many things, you know, mentoring uh, people who are doing uh, young companies. Um, you know, there, there really isn't any other organization that can bring that network of, of people to bear. And I think there's, uh, you know, now more than ever, it can have an impact. Well, Dr. Rupert Vesey, thank you so much uh, for your contribution today. It's been fun and uh, hopefully to be repeated uh, again at some stage. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nigel.